That was a sweet time of worship. I don't know what it was like for you outside the cage, but inside that cage, it was really sweet, really loud, really sweet, really sweet. God's so good. There, there are times that our emotion catches up with reality. There, there are times that our excitement bubbles over because of something we've observed. There are times that our heart sinks because of something we've observed. But resetting our hearts back to normal is that when we recognize and when we sense and really become aware, how many of you know his presence never leaves us, always around us. He's like the air that we breathe, he's never gone, always there. Sometimes we're aware of the fact that there's air around us, like when we need it, like for me if I run. I'm very much aware of my need for air at the end of that. And that's when we become aware of air. And we're grateful for it. And sometimes it takes the, the rough times, dark times, hard times. And we become aware of the fact that he's been with us all along. That's just an amazing thing. I love God. I just love how he is. I love how he shows up in times. And then our, our heart actually, I thought that phone was amening me over there. Was, <laughs> <laughs> then there are times that we become aware. And I, I want to, read to you and I'll catch you up on David's story because uh, there's another wilderness song. If you have your Bible, please turn to Psalm 63. I'll catch up with you there in a minute because um, the thing that David is most known for, two things really that he's most known for. One is that he killed Goliath, right? Everybody, I knew that before I knew Jesus. Everybody knows that. He's also best known for being a psalmist. He wrote at least a quarter, maybe a third of all the Psalms that we have in our Bible, maybe up to half, some say. A lot of them aren't signed. You know, he didn't think to write his name on the bottom of some of them. So when David would write his songs, it was out of his life experience. You know, do you all love hearing the backstory behind a song that really moves you? Like if you've seen the movie, I can only imagine it's the backstory behind that song. And I'd heard that, you know, that was one of those unfortunate songs that was so good it got overplayed. You know what I mean? And then you don't want to listen to it for six months because you listen to it six times a day every day for, for the beginning. And then, and, but when I watched that movie and I learned the backstory, which I never knew, behind that song, when he got up on that stage and began to sing the song, I don't know, it came alive in a fresh new way. There's something about the Psalms, especially for me, the ones that David wrote, when he was in the wilderness, when he was running for his life, when he had every right to hold a pity party with himself as the guest of honor, he had every right, and, and most normal people would be so depressed, they would just pack it in and quit. But David had an anointing, and he had a word, and he had a purpose, and he knew what God had in store for him, even though everything that happened in his life seemed to be the opposite. Just when it was looking good, he was in the palace, he was the front man for the king, right-hand man, armor-bearer, chief of a thousand and, and, the, and the army and everybody looked at him, celebrated him, sang songs when he'd come into the city. Just when everything was looking up, it was like, I mean, taking the rug out from under him doesn't even begin. It was more like, you ever see those videos when a sinkhole opens up and a truck swallows up a truck? It was like that for David. All of a sudden, he's an enemy of the state. His enemies don't want him. His people don't want him. Now he's got people lying about him and betraying him and handing him over to the one who's trying to kill him. He's all by himself except for these four, then 600 miscreants who tag along with him for a little while, who would become, of course, his mighty men. But the way that David handled it, you know, I, 
Somebody, a friend of mine told me, Steve, you're always talking about problems and issues and, and stuff like that. How come? Just, just preach happy things. You know, why can't you be more like Joey Osteen or something like that and just, you know, be upbeat? And, and I said, I don't mind. I'd love to be like Joey Osteen, get up here and do a comedy routine for 45 minutes every Sunday. But I don't think most saints need that. Yeah, we need to laugh and, and we need celebration and we need all of that. But I found that most, all the people I know who have fallen away from God, who've walked a different path because something happened. They, somebody did something to them or they believed somebody did something to them or a circumstance of life, something that brought grief. Now all of a sudden we're going on a different path of life instead of, as David wrote very young, he'll lead me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And we get off that path because we get upset and we don't handle it well. David handled it magnificently. In fact, as you'll see as we finish out David's life in the next few weeks, David did so much better with God when he was in the wilderness running for his life than he did when he was safe and comfortable in the palace. In fact, the first day that he didn't go out to fight was when things started to really unravel in his household. He was so much better in this place. I, I, my heart for all of us, because every single, how many of you have a holy calling on your life? That's a serious question. If you don't raise your hand, I'm gonna preach a different message. How many of you know you have a holy calling on your life? How many of you need to be saved? You didn't put your hand up. You do. You have Christ in you. He's got ideas for your life. He has things in store that eye hasn't even seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't even entered into our hearts. But he's wanting to reveal them by the Holy Spirit, and I pray he does. I pray that even just seeing how David overcame, I, I've been praying for all of us as we go through David's life, that places where we got stuck, places where we got trapped in life, that you, you'll get unstuck, untrapped, that you get through to the other side of the wilderness. I shared this morning with the pre-service prayer group, some of you who have made it through to the other side of the wilderness, we need you to tell your story. We need you to go back and talk to people about how to get through to the other side of the wilderness. How, how do you do this thing? How do you stay faithful to God when it seems like everything's falling apart? How do you stay in love with God when it feels like he's totally abandoned you when you needed him most? I call to mind that old poem. I think it came out in the 70s, the Footprints poem. You know that? Footprints in the sand. And how could you have left me when I needed you most? There's only one set of footprints. You know, one was his, one was the Lord's. And, and then it's, it's nothing. And he said, well, you know, it was then that I carried you. And then the guy said, what about those parts where there's like one set of footprints and a set of streaks in the sand? And God said, that's when I dragged you through. <laughs> Sometimes he has to do that, right? Sometimes he has to do that. But for David, he just knew how to grab hold of God and say, okay, I don't like what's happening right now, but I'm not gonna believe that you've changed just because my circumstances have. And so David spent better part of 10 years in this wilderness that I'm, you see these pictures right here, these are the mountains of southern Israel, these, this, to the left of the Dead Sea, which is west. Um, and this is where he's hiding now for his life. You saw how he rescued a city from the enemies, and then they said, hey, Saul, David's hiding over here. So he's not safe anywhere. Even if he helps people, it's not safe to be around there. So he's in this place, and he comes near a city of Ziph, and, and those people... Uh, they take it upon themselves. They don't even wait for Saul to ask. They sent people up to, 
uh, to where Paul wa- or where Saul was. <laughs> this one didn't become Paul. He went up to Saul's pal. They went up, the Ziphites they are from that city, and they said, hey, David's hiding over here, a bunch of rats. Hey, he's over here, he's hiding. We know our way around. We'll show you where he is. Saul said, okay, great. You go spy it out because he's very crafty, I know. Dave is very crafty. And uh, you tell me where he is and we're going to come down. So Saul took 3,000 men. And he's chasing David around in this wilderness. He's trying to find David. Who remember, he's playing, you know, he's playing hide and seek with 600 full-grown men. They're, they're just trying to hide in all of these. But you can see there's some pretty good hiding places here. There's one spot that you could go to today. Apparently, I don't know exactly where it is, where you could see where somebody built a stronghold right into there. There are these caves that go in miles and miles into the mountains of that area, which rise up to 4,000 feet. So they're chasing around, and 3,000 men are chasing David and his 600, and he's through the... There it is right there. Look at that. That would be a great hide-and-seek place right there. And... and and he's, you know, he's behind the field and he's over the mountain and he's through the, the woods. It's like a Jewish western, you know, and, and then if they catch up with them, David's done. So they get to this. It's an amazing part. And I'm sorry, we've got to kind of move through David's life. There's a fun story, though. You can read all about it in your own Bible. It's really cool. So he has him trapped. He's on one, Saul's on one side of a mountain. David's on the other side of the mountain. And it looks like that's it. He's surrounded. All of a sudden, And I believe David probably could hear this going on. All of a sudden, a messenger comes to Saul. Hey, the Philistines are invading again. And Saul goes, and he gets his 3,000 men, and they go get the Philistines. And David was rescued again. How many of you are grateful that God finds ways to rescue us that we don't even know about sometimes? I mean, we have that told in the scriptures. We know how David got rescued that time. You think that was a coincidence? They just happened to pick Tuesday. Tuesday, day for raiding. They just... Just at the right time, when the enemy thought he had David, now the king's distracted and he has to go be a king again instead of a madman chasing a flea through the woods, as David described himself. So I believe after that, just imagine with me, there's David, he's there at night, he's going, man, there's nowhere safe. Everywhere I go, even my own people now have turned against me. They go and tell Saul where I'm hiding, as if they believe I've betrayed him and I'm going to kill him or something like that. And in that cave, David wrote a psalm. And again, I'm going to urge you. I don't know how many of you journal. I do it in my own way. I'm not, I'm not disciplined enough to remember every day to write something down in a journal. So I just, every once in a while, I have this Evernote file. I just blast things in there when I'm thinking of it. And that's sort of kind of a journal. It's disorganized and chaotic. And I don't know if David had time to do so. But thank God he wrote some psalms in these places. There is no human emotion, there's no human experience that's not covered in the Psalms in one way or another. So here's Psalm 63, which David wrote when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Hopefully I've set the stage for you. You understand what David's going through at this time? And this is how he, this is how he handles it. He looks to God. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. First, confess the situation. It's not wrong to say, hey, this is awful what's going on around me right now. That's not giving authority to the situation. That's looking Goliath square in the face. See, I see all nine and a half feet of you. I see how big your spear is. I see what you're wearing and all of that, blah, blah, blah. But I'm gonna look at something else that's bigger than you more magnificent than you, and much scarier than you. Then I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. 
I'm not looking at the circumstance anymore. I've got to remember what God looks like right now. I've seen you in the sanctuary. Where's the sanctuary? Well, David hadn't been in. There was no sanctuary. The tabernacle was empty of an ark right now. There was no worship going on. David had these heavenly visions. He said, I've seen you. I know what you look like. I've seen your power. I've seen your glory. I'm going to gaze on that right now. Because the view outside this cave is a desert. And at any moment, I could see an army of 3,000 coming to get me. I need a different perspective right now. I need, remember this thing right here? I'm not looking out my cave, looking up into the heavenlies because I need to remember that you are sovereign. I need to remember that you are with me and you are so much better, so much bigger than all of what's going on around me. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is my favorite verse in all the Bible, Psalm 63, verse three. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. He doesn't have a bed to lie down on. He doesn't have a true friend in the world. Not yet. These men will become that to him, but right now I think they're just hanging on because they have nowhere else to go. Uh, Jonathan is still his friend, but other than that, he's all by himself. But, but he's got something to eat from. He's got something to draw from so that his life doesn't just crumble all around him. Your loving kindness. My favorite Hebrew word, the chesed of God. It's a word that has no one word in the English to translate it into. Because your chesed is better than life, my lips will praise you. Your, all of the goodness of God is what this word means, chesed. All of how good you are manifested to me. Whatever I need you to be right now. Do I need comfort right now because I'm grieving? You got that. Do I need encouragement right now because I've become discouraged? You're that for me. Do I need peace because I'm so anxious and my thoughts are so scattered? Your chesed is better than life. If, if any or all of us would get to a place where his loving kindness is better than life, nothing could bother, nothing could get us down. This is what Paul experienced. This was Paul's moment when he had that thorn in his flesh, messenger of Satan to buffet him, and God said, I'm not gonna deliver you from this thing. Why? My grace is sufficient for you. My chesed is sufficient for you. All you need is me. Then you're gonna come up higher. How many of you believe that God wants to strengthen us so that we could go into dark, scary places, equip us and strengthen us for war? He wants us to be people that don't need to live in some safe palace somewhere. He wants us to be people who are not afraid to go to a place like Allison Hill and pick up needles off the street and love on some people that otherwise, when you see them in the news, might look a little scary. He wants us to be able to go someplace like a war-torn nation that's still devastated from the war, that at any moment, it's like a tinderbox, I'm talking about Liberia, that could just all of a sudden erupt into rioting and, and things like that. I mean, last time we were there, we're driving through Monrovia, and after we got through, our host told us, hey, um, be careful of those motorcycles, because if you bump one of them, they might surround your car and burn it. I said, oh, thanks for waiting until after we got through to tell me that. God wants us to be able to go to places like that with no fear. How do you get like that? You don't just take somebody off the street and make them a soldier. They gotta go through some kind of training. We call it boot camp. But even boot camp, you talk, some of you who are actually veterans, you know boot camp prepares you only so much. First time real bullets start flying, first time real shells start exploding around you, now you're in training. We gotta be able to overcome that kind of training 
and be able to look at the Lord in the middle of it and say, your loving kindness, that's all I need right now. As long as you still love me, as long as I know you got my eternity in your hands, I can handle anything the enemy throws my way. And I'm ready to go where you send me, even if I'm the only one that goes, and it's absolutely terrifying. Jesus gave the Great Commission before he gave the Great, Great Commission when he sent his 12 and then the 72 out. And you know what he told them? I'm sending you out like sheep or lambs among wolves. Sign me up. That sounds like fun. I'm bait. I'm, I'm just bait. That's what I am. I'm just bait to make the enemy go, whoo-hoo, we got him now. But if his loving kindness is better than life, if he surrounds us in the middle of all of that, he makes a table before us in the presence of our enemies, now, blessed be the Lord my strength who has taught my hands to war. We can go anywhere, do anything in that presence. So because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. This is David singing in a cave. Maybe he's just writing it. I don't know if he got the, the melody for it yet, but he's writing this down. I'll bless you as long as I live. You're not gonna hear any cursing coming from my lips. I'm not gonna be cursing my enemies, and I'm not gonna be cursing you, and I'm not gonna turn my back on you just because I feel alone in this. Nope, I will bless you as long as I live. And I'm not gonna bless you like, oh, yeah, no, I'm gonna bless the Lord. Nope, I'm gonna lift up my hands to your name. They're gonna see me, if they look at me, the, the men that are watching right now, show me what this looks like, show me what, what real deal walking with God looks like. I almost said real deal Christianity, but that was about a thousand years too early. Show me what it looks like to be a son of God and walk with him. I'm, they're gonna see my hands lifted right now. That's what they're gonna see in the middle of all of this. My soul is satisfied with, with marrow and fatness. My soul is satisfied. I bet you he was hungry. Did you see those pictures of that wilderness? I bet you it wasn't a whole lot of game out there. They're eating bush meat, except there's no bush. They're just eating whatever, desert meat. They're eating whatever they could find in the middle of that wilderness, desperately trying to find water. His body's not satisfied, but he said, my soul. Oh man, it's like I just got back from a banquet right now. In my inner man right now, although my outer man is in desperate need of help, my inner man's doing just fine. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. How many of you know, to, to sing that in the middle of David's circumstances, you either gotta be insane, or you just tapped into something. You tapped into something that will make everyone around us go, oh, I need a hit of whatever she just had. I need some of that right now. Because all I got is depression, sorrow, anxiety, and fear. And, and she's in the same situation I'm in. And she's singing and rejoicing. She either lost her, done lost her mind or, or she's got something I need right now. That, that's, our, that's a testimony. That is, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Light is made for darkness. You and I were made for darkness. Let's not get too comfortable in a place where somebody else is already lighting it up. Let's be those who say, go ahead, send me to the wilderness, Lord. I'll go wherever you send me. I will go someplace where there is no oasis yet, and I'll make the oasis. I'll take the Arabah, the desert, right by there, and I'm going to make it into an oasis at the end of it. That's what I'm going to do. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. All right, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's good. All right. <laughs> when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Let's imagine David. They're taking turns, right? They're looking for Saul. They don't know when he's gonna come back. 
They got, you know, scouts out. They got their guards all set up on the hills and whatnot to spy out and make sure, hey, if Saul comes back again, you make sure you warn us so we can scoot around, you know, and get away from him again. I'm going to remember you on my bed. So in his night watches, what's he thinking about? There's an option here. This is where choices get made. This is so important, guys. This is where our choices get made. David's in this depressing, awful situation. He could be meditating on everything that's gone wrong. He could be cursing Saul right now. He could be upset about killing all the priests. And now there's so many things that David could be thinking about all night long. He's got cause to go over and over in his mind. You know why we do this, right? When somebody's insane, when they've lost their mind, it's because you've been circulating the wrong kind of thoughts over and over again. And and I'm urging you, if you find yourself recirculating thoughts in your mind of all the hurts, all the the betrayals, all the whatever that brings anxiety, fear, and anger into your life, don't allow those thoughts to keep going around. This is where we fight our battle. This is where we either win or lose. Because we can cry out to God for deliverance all we want, but if we keep making a landing strip for the enemy to keep reminding us of all the hurts and pains so that we become bitter, There's literally nothing the Lord can do. We've just fed ourselves on bitterness instead of what David did. I'm gonna meditate on you. There's nothing else worth meditating on right now. For David, it's like, I just lost everything. I got nothing good right now in my life except you. Isn't that an awesome thing? No matter how bad it gets, we cannot lose. There's one thing that can never be taken away. That's the presence of God. He is always the same always with us for you've been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy my soul clings to you that might be a good memory verse your right hand upholds me Psalm 63 verse 8 my soul clings to you the next time those anxious thoughts start going woo all around in that my soul clings to you my soul is the part of me that moves me if our soul gets agitated, we're going to be agitated. If our soul is downcast, we're going to be depressed. Our soul literally is where our life gets lived from. Led by the Spirit's awesome, but being led by the Spirit means our soul now is in a good place. That's what it ought to look like. Your right hand upholds me. And then he always throws in a little bit for those. Those who seek my life to destroy will go down into the depths of the earth. They'll be delivered over to the power of the sword. They'll be prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Who's the king? Who's he talking about? David is meditating on God's promises right now. God, you anointed me to be king. Jonathan said I'm going to be king. Even Saul will soon acknowledge you're going to be the next king. I'm going to be king. The king will rejoice in God and everyone who swears by him will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. So David has a hope. And as you'll see, I don't know if we'll get all the way into it this week, but David's going to keep his trust in God and won't take any of the action necessary to get himself into the throne. He will not promote himself even though God's the one who said you're going to be king. So let's, uh, when, when we meditate, whatever we meditate on, That means to think about something over and over again is probably the best indicator for where our future is going. What we're continually thinking about. Take take a look at your thoughts, uh, all all of you. I really urge you, just, just consider what do I spend the most time each day thinking about? And if it's like, you know, random fun, you know, things like that, okay, that's fine, that's all well and good, but our thoughts determine what happens next. As a man thinks in his heart, 
So he is he, so is he, so he becomes. Whatever we're thinking about, that's what's next. So what are we thinking about? What are the kind of thoughts that consume our heart? Are they visions of, God, you have good things in store for me. God, you have an amazing journey ahead for me. Or are they visions and thoughts of, my life stinks, it's horrible right now, and everything's falling apart? Because that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. God intends good for us. Do you believe that? God has intention for good. God always is for us. He's never against us. But we can literally interrupt God's blessing plan in our lives by meditating on everything that's wrong. It's like we build a wall and we say, I don't want to hear it, God. I don't want to hear what you have in store for me. It doesn't look anything like that right now. And I'm not interested in what you have to say. Instead, David's meditating on, I'm going to be king one day. All right, now let's look at this next story because finally comes a moment where David and Saul get face to face. It's been several years probably by this point in the wilderness. I'm in 1 Samuel 21, and uh, the story goes like this. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. There those guys are, ratting him out again. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Now he's, he's like, all right, I'm going to need an elite force. So he's taking like special forces, Navy SEAL um, Israelites on this one because David is squirrely and he keeps getting away. So I'm going to take the best of the best with me, and we're going to go find this guy. Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. They weren't very clever with names back then, I think. The rock of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. David's hiding in the cave. When are you going to get the king by himself without his bodyguard? when he has to go in a cave to relieve himself. Then at Port Potty, he's out there. There was no rest stop. So he goes into a cave, and there's David. Like, are you kidding me? He sees a form of a man entering the cave where he's hiding. That's Saul. His men are all around. David, that's Saul. Look, look. And they're talking in the cave. So the men of David said to him, listen to this, behold, the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. David not only apparently is carrying a prophetic word that he's gonna be king one day, but also a prophecy, I don't know who gave it to him or how he knows, that the Lord's gonna deliver your enemy into your hand. Now what does every normal person do? Oh, well, you know what happens when God delivers an enemy into the hands of somebody, you kill them. That's why God delivered me, them, into my hands so I could kill them. Obviously, just like it's so obvious, somebody throws a spear at you, you take it out of the wall, you throw it right back. That's what normal people do. But not a man who carries God's heart, not a man after God's own heart. David, David, Old Testament king doing a New Testament thing. He is just other than everybody else. All of his men are there. They got their hands on their swords. They're like, we can put an end to this nightmare right now. And they'll never even know what happened to him. David arose. Remember, he's a wily one. Cut off the edge of Saul's robe in secret. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Not only did he spare the king's life, but it bothered him 
that he messed up his clothes. He took, I don't know what, there's so many options for what David was thinking. I'm not even sure which one I'd believe yet. Why the corner of his robe? I mean, that's gonna be his robe one day. Maybe he's claiming just a little bit, just for a moment, saying this could be mine one day. Well, not right now. And he took it off. Maybe he was just being nudgy. Maybe he just wanted proof. I could have had you, as he'll say in a moment. You'll see, I could have had you, but I spared your life, Saul. Maybe he just took it for evidence. Maybe he just did it for the same reason why he went to the king of Gath with Goliath's sword on his back. He wasn't thinking. So I'm just cut this thing off. But whatever the case is, his conscience bothered him that he even did that. Is anyone there here? Is, I mean, is anyone in that place where not only will we not get, you know, take advantage of the moment when God delivers somebody who's really, really against us into our hand, but it would bother us that we even thought of doing something bad to them? That's David. That's the man carrying God's heart. That's what he's like because that's what God's like. It bothered him that he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Verse six, so he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. That's such an important, underline that, circle that, and remember it. It's not because David is so extraordinary, although he is. It's not because David had something special going on in God. It's because he'd just been with God. He wrote Psalm 63. He said, I'm rejoicing with you. Your loving kindness is better than life. I'm surrounded by your chesed, your mercy, your grace. I'm living in that grace bubble right now. And because of the Lord, because of the Lord, that I should, far be it, because of the Lord that I should do this thing to, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And then he talks down all the men in the cave and he says, David persuaded them with these words. He did not allow them to rise up against Saul. Can you imagine what it's like to hold back 600 men who remember they're all running away from Saul for a variety of reasons. Most of them because they deserve to be in jail, but they're ready to kill him. You won't even have to tell me twice. These are the same dudes. Remember one of them took out, he defended the field and you know, thousands were dead at the end of the day. Those dudes, any one of them could have taken out all of those men and they all, David said, no, 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 no. That's not how we're gonna do this. This is not how we're gonna get it done. Why? I'm not gonna rule when I do come into the throne as King Saul II. That will not be me. I'll not do it by the same spirit that man has and I'll not do it by my own hands. The one beautiful thing about our call of God is that it's all about us and it's not about us at the same time. It's all about us in the sense of nobody else could do what you're called to do. Only you could do that. Nobody can replace you in that. You have a unique, special purpose. For David, it was to be king of Israel. Your purpose, my purpose, nobody else can do it for us. Somebody could do it similar to us. Somebody will do it perhaps if we don't do our part but it's, it's all about us. At the same time, it's not about us to make it happen. There's, there's no such thing as, I've got to make this thing happen. My, my pastor, the day I was ordained in pastoral ministry, looked me square in the face. And he said, remember, Steve, there's only one thing you need to do for the rest of your life now, manifest. In other words, you just put on the outside of you what's true to be on the inside of you, and God will take care of all the rest. You don't have to force anything. You don't have to strive. There's no making it happen. There's just saying, okay, Jesus, Christ in me, manifest outside of me. 
in the own unique way that only I could do it. You are the best you that there is in the world. There's nobody else could do it quite like you. That is true. He knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He knew you before he laid the foundations of the earth. You were chosen in Christ. And he just knows. So carrying the heart of God means that we love what he loves, we honor whom he honors, and we behave accordingly. This king may look like an enemy. How many of you can acknowledge with me that a Christian has no enemies that have flesh and blood? That might be the single most important thing to remember when we're faced with adversaries in life. You're not my enemy. You are serving my enemy. You are deceived by my enemy. You may even be acting like my enemy. But as far as how I look at you, you're not my enemy. You are somebody upon whom I hope God will bring me to a place of compassion. I hope that God will take my heart and make it his heart because the Father in heaven is always eager for his prodigals to come home. The Father in heaven is always eager and finds ways that those that feel banished from his presence can find their way back to him with wide open arms. You're not gonna come back and get a spanking here. You're gonna come back and be received. Oh, we'll have to talk about what's happening because that can't happen again, but you're gonna be welcomed back with wide open arms in this place. That's what the Father's like. So when we come across somebody like David did with Saul, who's acting like our enemy, we've got to first get back, do a Psalm 63 first, wrap me back up in your grace, God, because I'm not feeling like showing grace right now. Remind me of how much mercy I've received because I'm not feeling like showing mercy right now. You all tracking with me? You got somebody in mind right now? We've got maybe a few somebody's in mind right now. <laughs> there he is meddling again. Uh-huh, because I love you and because I have to do this too. When we have opportunity to seek revenge, to punish somebody who's wronged us, we can just consider it a test of mercy. This is one of the hurdles. If we want to carry kingdom authority, we've got to learn how to carry mercy as the first thing. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder? Bunch of people, they rejected the message and they came back to Jesus. Hey, how about we pour down fire from heaven upon them? And Jesus is like, whoa, dude, switch to decaf or something. Calm down. What? You don't even know what spirit you're of right now. I didn't, I'm not coming for that. I don't know what you were expecting, like a Sodom Gomorrah type situation. No, no, no. No, no, no. We're here to have mercy triumph over judgment. What they didn't know yet, but Jesus knew, was that judgment without mercy will be given to one who shows no mercy. In other words, we get to set the tone for our lives. We get to set the attitude for how we're treated out there. Not that there won't be people that still mistreat us, don't get me wrong. But we have opportunity to say, I'm gonna sow mercy and I'll be reaping mercy in response to that. God's favorite response, you know what God's favorite response for sin is? It's to show mercy. He hates it when he has to get to the judge part. He hates it when he has to consume. And he only does it as a last resort because it's gonna harm the things he loves. That's, oh, that's how God is. Carrying God's heart means I'm not seeking anyone's destruction. I'm seeking their salvation. That goes for people in our lives, and oh yeah, it goes for people that we see on a TV screen or doing things in Washington. 
It goes for government officials. It goes for police. It even goes for rioters who shoot police. Man. Yeah, you know, the, one of my favorite funny moments in all of the Gospels is when Jesus told them, you got to forgive 70 times 7. And do you know what their response was? I see me, you know this because my one of my favorite moments. Lord, increase our faith. When he told them, go out, heal the sick, cure the lame, make limbs grow, raise the dead. Pre- no, no, all right, yeah, cool, we'll go do that. And he said, you got to forgive 70 times 7 in a day. Oh, we need some faith now. Right? Because why? Because it's drawing from this heart and it's a test to find out how much has my heart become converted to be like God's heart and how much is it still the same old me trying to dictate what I'm going to do next. And this is, I'm telling you, this is the number one test. God, how can God trust us with authority? He's got the sons of thunder here. He's going to give them authority to forgive sins and go out into the world to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And if their thought is, hey, if they say no, I ain't, I'm done with that. Shake the dust off your feet. Get that. Fire and brimstone, baby. I'm going to watch the show like Jonah up on the hill. He wants to trust us to go out and demonstrate authority, but a trustworthy heart, as David was in the crucible, in the wilderness in this case, consider ourselves to be in the crucible when somebody betrays us, when somebody wrongs us, when somebody's even chasing us down, acting like an enemy, consider ourselves, consider yourself in the test. You're in the crucible. You wanna come through and have more kingdom authority, manifest Christ in us all the more. There has got to be mercy right on our tongue. So the more aware of his presence we become, the more effortless mercy becomes. How did David do it? Not because he was exercising his will. Nobody could do it that long. How many of you know, and you know, you can like the Boy Scout, good, how many Boy Scouts we got here today? I was one. You're like, what? <laughs> Some nut job tried to do Boy, uh, do boy Scouts in Queens, New York. It lasted one year. <laughs> I won't say it was our fault that he left, but I think it was our fault that he, he's like, forget this, kids are nuts. <laughs> so you had to do a good deed every day, right? That was the Boy Scout thing back in the 70s anyway. That's what we did. I don't know if it's still there. You got to do a good deed a day. Anybody can do that. Anybody can exercise their will and do one good thing every day. Most people can exercise their will and be relatively good all day long for a day maybe even two or three days. But surround yourself with the same miscreants that are causing misery in your life, that same coworker, that same boss, that same neighbor, that same whatever in your life, and see how long you last. Can I handle it for a week? Can I handle it for a month? Before I'm like, maybe a meteor could hit their house or something like that. You know, maybe, <laughs> How long can we go? David is in this test right now. How long will he make it in the wilderness? He's not going to do it by his own will. He's going to do it by saying, I want to be surrounded right now by mercy. And out of that, I'm going to be able to exercise such mercy that it's going to be overwhelming. Now I'm going to hop, skip, and jump you through the rest of the story. David comes out of the cave and he, he holds out that cloth and he says to Saul, hey, Saul, I was in the cave. Yeah, we all saw you. Sorry. I got, I got, I see this portion of your robe right here. The Lord delivered you into my hand, but look, I showed mercy to you. 
Why are you chasing me? Who told you that I'm out to kill you? Somebody had been telling stories. And David said, what? why do you think I'm gonna, why are you chasing me anyway? Would you come out to pursue? I'm just a flea in comparison to the king of majesty of Israel. I'm nobody. And you know what David called Saul? My father. He said, my father, my Lord, and my king. And I don't think David was the type to use titles in politeness. I believe that somehow David managed to get to a place where he said, I might right now, you're my enemy, but I could still call you what you are because God calls you that. And so I'm gonna agree with God and call you that. He holds it up, he gives this whole speech, and then, and then it's just an amazing thing that David does in the middle of that. So he calls it out, and, and, then, and then Saul responds. He says, David, is that you? And he goes, my son. <laughs> yeah, he put the capital D in the dis and dysfunctional family if that's what you do to your son. I'm gonna kill you. Throwing spears at you, I'm hunting you down with the elite of the elite of Israel. My son. <laughs> that's what he just almost used an expression I shouldn't say in church, crazy. <laughs> just crazy and he goes oh my son and then he blesses him can you go to that verse I think it's verse 20 ish now Saul responds to David and verse 19 uh, verse 18 <laughs> let's start <in> verse 17 because <laughs> it's really good this is, I'm going to close with this, okay? So he's, this is Saul now. And Saul lifted his voice. I'm sorry, that was 16b. <laughs> You're more righteous than I, David. You're more righteous than I, for you've dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. Raise your hand if you have a testimony of a time that you showed mercy to somebody who didn't deserve it, and then they came back to you later on and said, I don't know why you did that. Why are you being nice to me right now? Anybody? You got a testimony like that? I'm going to pray all of you get a testimony like that. The mayor of Graz is going to have testimonies like that. Yes, he is. <laughs> For while you've dealt with well with me, I've dealt wickedly with you. You've declared today that you've done good to, the, to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? And now he's going to procure a blessing from the king. I'll just stop and say this. I'll have more next week about spiritual authority and honor and so on for next week's message. But suffice to say for a moment, this man still occupies a throne and he's been anointed king. God still views Saul as the only one true king of Israel. David's next. If David would take the throne by his own hands, he'd be a usurper and would ruin everything about what his kingdom could be. But Saul is still the king and he has authority to speak. I just want to encourage you with something that even if you believe that, man, I messed up, I had a horrible week, and so my voice carries no authority, what right do I have to bless? What right do I have to go and do anything for the Lord? I'm not suggesting a double life of hypocrisy, but I'm saying that just because you failed in something doesn't mean you lose your authority. Even Saul. You know what Saul's done now. You've been tracking with his life. Even Saul still had authority, so he blesses David. May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you've done to me this day. And here it comes. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. He just acknowledged himself as like a false start first king of Israel, which is what he was. 
He was king not because God said, hey, it's time for a king. He was king because the people said, we want a king, just like the other nations, and, and God allowed them to have it. Sowing mercy invites mercy into our lives, and blessing those who curse us invites blessing into our lives. Let's stand on our feet. I'm going to leave you with one scriptural exhortation. It's Romans 16, 19. Right away, some of you got the song in your head. I'm sorry. Because you know what it says. Part B says what the song says. But here's the first part of it. Paul's exhorting the Romans. They live under the shadow of Nero at that time. Crazy emperor, thought he was God. It was an awful life for Christians who lived in Rome. But he wrote to them and rejoiced. He, he had a whole section in chapter 13 of Romans about submitting to authority, honoring the offices of authority. And then he said, the report of your obedience has reached to all. And therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. I'm rejoicing over you because of your obedience, because you've stayed faithful, because you still obey the Lord. And in obeying the Lord, you also obey the King. You're good citizens. But I want you to know be wise or be excellent. Excel in what is good and be innocent of what is evil. That's a good motto for life for all of us. Excel in practicing goodness and be innocent of all evil. It really is black and white. It is that simple. And then you know what the promise is? The God of peace. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not amazing, weird expression. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. The enemy, who is whatever, using people, using circumstances, God's gonna crush that spiritual enemy under your feet. Wouldn't it be awesome if his way of crushing the enemy under your feet would be that that one who's cursing you and bringing sorrow and torment into your life got saved? Wouldn't it be an awesome way for the Lord to get a victory and crush the enemy, squish him right under your heel? I know like, the old man part of us is like, oh, I can't wait to squish that person under my heel. No. How about the enemy who deceived them, who's using them, who's inhabiting their voice and their actions? What if that enemy got crushed and all of a sudden that person came like out of a spell and said, I've been horrible to you. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? They got delivered, even if they didn't get saved, they got delivered from it, why? Because we excelled at what was good. We, our hands kept clean, just like David's. I'm not gonna be the one to touch the Lord's anointed. It's not gonna come through me. The enemy will get him some way or something will happen to him. I don't know how God's gonna work this out, but it ain't gonna be me. I'm gonna be innocent of evil. Can you just think of somebody that, that you needed to hear this for right now and offer them up before the Lord? And, ju and just pray with me. I mean, you don't have to repeat after me. I don't know, I'm not into that. But just pray along with me. God, I, I bless that one who's been persecuting me. I bless that one who's bringing harm into my life for no good reason. And I pray that you would visit them. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, not just to see their wickedness, but to see the enemy that's using them right now for his glory and to build his kingdom. Would you... Tear off the veil of deception. And, and in tearing that veil, may they see you face to face. 
May they see you in all of your majesty. May they see you the way I can see you, the merciful one, the one who was eager for me to come back home, the one who showed such mercy to me that I couldn't stop crying for weeks after I knew that God welcomed me back home. Could you be that for them, Lord? Would you do that for them? Would you awaken them from their spell? Deliver them. We pray deliverance on those who have become so caught up in evil that they don't even know they're doing evil. They call evil good and call good evil now. We bless them, Lord, and pray that you'll pour out your presence on them and turn them around. And I pray that there'd be many saints in this house that will have that testimony, as I just shared, people coming to them and saying, would you please forgive me? I don't know what I was thinking when I did that. You didn't deserve to be treated that way. I I pray even, I'm just starting to feel something prophetically, and I don't know who all this might be for, but there's gonna be a recompense for it. Like it was something, I just got something to the effect of like something was stolen, like literal money or something taken from you. And in the repentance is gonna come a restitution of what was stolen, maybe even directly from that person. They're gonna repent and then show the fruits of repentance of giving you back what they took from you. Lord, I bless that. I, I pray that that would be a testimony we would see and I exhort you to make sure you glorify God for that when it happens. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome week. Um, Yeah, see you in the plan. Bless you.